Welcome to What's the Buzz Without a Podcast. This podcast is for beekeepers from Atlantic Canada who want relevant, timely information about beekeeping in the region. We feature beekeepers and experts with specialist insights into our beekeeping and pollination industry. I'm your host, Andrew Byers, and today we're speaking with Dr. Jennifer Bunnell. Jennifer is an Associate Professor in the Department of History at York University, where she teaches courses in environmental, Canadian, and public history. She is the author of Reclaiming the Dawn, an environmental history of Toronto's Don River Valley. Her current work on the history of beekeeping in Ontario focuses on the late 19th century. She has recently published two papers on this topic, Early Insecticide Controversies and Beekeeper Advocacy in the Great Lakes Region, and Insecticides, Honeybee Losses, and Beekeeper Advocacy in 19th Century Ontario. She is currently working on a new book, Forages of a Modern Countryside, Honeybees, Agricultural Modernization and Environmental Change in the Great Lakes Region. Welcome, Jennifer, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm just curious because I know with your background as a historian, there is an environmental focus on your research, but I couldn't see the direct path that led you from where you began with that now to this interest in beekeeping. I was just wondering if you could share with us how you managed to get an interest and in, in a research focus based on the history of beekeeping in, in Canada. Well, you know, to use a, a beekeeping metaphor, there's no really clear waggle dance from no. my original research to uh, my, my work on bees. So. Yeah, I'll tell you a bit about that. My first book is on the his the environmental history of Toronto's Don River Valley. And I look at people's relationship with this place at the edge of the city, a big ravine space from, you know, the set late 1700s to the present. And what I kept discovering in my research on this valley, which was heavily industrialized in the 19th century, uh, and, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Don, remains a fairly polluted, but in the process of regeneration watershed today. In any case, I, I kept coming across references to beekeepers sowing the valley with, uh, with sweet clover, for example, or um, keeping bees on the tablelands just adjacent to the river valley. And I just sort of filed these away. And one of my main protagonists in this story is, was a man named Charles Soriel, who was a conservationist and real champion for the protection of the Don Valley in the 1940s and 50s. And he was also an apiarist. So he wrote about beekeeping and kept bees in the valley. And he learned from a squatter in the valley how to keep bees. So, you know, I had my interest peaked by how beekeepers were using a kind of throwaway undeveloped space at the city's edges to both keep their bees and to make it a place that was useful for them in you know sowing it with the kind of plants that would produce the best tasting honey okay good a lot of people find when they get into beekeeping or develop an interest it because it, it does um, become 
an obsession. So I warn you, maybe it's better to keep your interests strictly academic and don't take that next step into actual beekeeping. But if you ever decide to, we'll get you down to the Atlantic region and we'll get you into some hives. Sounds um, great. Good. Um, I, I had a look at, at some of your, your earlier research and, and it's equally fascinating as the, the beekeeping history, but, uh, but slightly different. And, and I was intrigued by, by one of your previous papers, which you called Comforting Past. And uh, when I think about the history of beekeeping, there's images that come to mind and, and they are of this tranquility and this, this ideal image of these beekeepers at one with nature in, the, in their quiet apiaries with, without the, the, the problems that we have now with, uh, you know, worrying about uh, toxicity of, of chemicals used in agriculture or, or heavy industrialization or, or conflicts between, between the beekeepers and their neighbors. And, and I think that idea does not transfer to the reality that you've presented us in this current work about, about, about the beekeeping and what was going on at the time. And I read it and I'm thinking, this, you could change these dates from 1890 to, to 2020 and, and some of the issues are still there. But, but I think if we keep that in mind and, and come back to that concept, because I think it, it really is intriguing how, how uh, you know, our, our ideal image of beekeeping in the past may not match up with what the reality was. Mm. But there certainly was another similarity going on at that time, which was there, was there was cultural changes and beekeeping was becoming very popular. And one of the images that, that, that uh, you create in your paper is this, this concept of taking bee papers. And it just, as somebody that's interested in, in apiculture and science, just this idea that this was a thing at the time to do, that, that people really wanted to know, not just about beekeeping, but about the science. That, that cultural change at the time parallels ours, but I'd be interested if you could give us some insight into what was going on you know, with the bigger picture and culturally at the time with beekeeping. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe we should back up a bit and just talk a little bit about the time period and that I'm looking at beekeepers in the Great Lakes region. So uh, thinking about the province of Ontario, but also neighboring US states, just because I found there was a lot of dialogue going on across the border between beekeepers in between Ontario and Michigan, Illinois, um, upper New York state, etc. in the 1880s and 90s. And I ended up focusing on that period because when I started to, you know, research the history of, of beekeeping. First of all, I started in Toronto. I wanted to know about the history of these people that I'd found in my study on the dawn and started to expand from there to realize that the, there was somewhat of an idyllic history of beekeeping, say in the you know 1860s and 70s when things were just getting started in the uh, Ontario area and at least expanding. But what I found was problems start to present themselves by the 1880s and by the 1890s in particular, both in terms of American fowl brood and in the paper that I recently had published, which talks about insecticide controversies. So beekeepers really having to advocate for the protection of their bees from, um, first of all, copper arsenates and later lead arsenate um, insecticides used on orchards in in the region and so those are the kinds of of, of things i explore in this paper and, and really take issue with the fact that yeah it wasn't beekeepers have been fighting for these issues for a very very long time 
you're talking about this interest in beekeeping, which which spread across the the right. American Canadian divide, and and we we see that certainly now, but but culturally, I think this interest, and again, that phrase that I caught out of your paper, this taking the bee paper, mm. I think to me just just brings about an image of these people, and in and a lot of the information was coming north from. Uh, into Canada from the States, but nonetheless, people were very interested in the science of beekeeping, which was just emerging at the time. I took from, from reading your paper. Yes, absolutely. And I found this just fascinating that a journal like the American Bee Journal, for example, which was read by a lot of Canadian beekeepers in the 1880s and 90s and into the 20th century. This was a weekly periodical that people received every week. And the, the dialogue is just so lively. You've got, you know, practitioners, people who are keeping bees in regular communication with, you know, sort of guru honeybee scientists of the period. So in, you know, the Dominion entomologist in Canada would have weighed into this. This is Fletcher. And then he had counterparts in the U.S. who he was, you know, continually in communication with, particularly around some of these hotspot issues like um, insecticides and related to that controversy, trying to prove the value of bees to the orchard in the first place. This was just something that was not widely known. So that's one of the things that I talk quite a bit about in this paper. But certainly, yes, at, to your question, the enthusiasm for knowledge about apiculture in general and about honeybee biology, which is it, people are really just beginning to understand questions of toxicity. So the fact that um, beekeepers themselves were in many ways driving the science. So coming into conflict with neighboring orchardists around insecticide use, they would establish the need for a study on the toxicity of a particular insecticide to honeybees. And then people at Guelph and people in um, the experimental stations, the, the agricultural stations in these neighboring U.S. states would set about, you know, doing that work. I, I, I find that really interesting as somebody who's involved in knowledge transfer and, and research around bees that that was going on at the time. But if we could just take one little step back, because one of the things that I found really interesting, and we will talk about, talk about the pesticide use, because I think that's very relevant today as it was then, but our knowledge of beekeeping back then was very limited. And now we have this great understanding of the relationship between fruit production and pollination, bees and wild blueberries and apples and cranberries and all of those other fruits. But in reading your papers, I realized that wasn't always the case. And I think with our mindset now, it's, it's difficult to, to, uh, to think of the, the absurd ideas that people had at the time about honeybees and fruit production, which even led to more ridiculous, looking at it from our point of view now, ridiculous lawsuits. Yeah. So can you give us a couple examples of those stories? Because I think they're great. Oh, yes. I mean, research in this paper was really just so much fun and just had me astonished over and over again, because this is common knowledge now, as you say. But the fact that there was this chronic case of mistaken identity that was one of the problems in that orchardists, people growing fruit of various kinds, uh, would complain about bees puncturing their fruit and drinking the juices and being otherwise destructive. 
So this was partly in defense of their use of insecticides, which had really helped them to produce much better and larger apple crops, for example. They would uh, respond to these complaints by neighboring beekeepers by saying, your bees are actually causing a problem in my orchard already. So I don't care if, you're, you know, if your bees are dying. I'm sorry, that's just uh, the price of being my neighbor. And it took these uh, honeybee scientists and entomologists like James Fletcher in Ottawa over and over again to talk about this case of mistaken identity between yellow jackets and um, honeybees and to establish too that honeybee mandibles aren't even strong enough to puncture you know, the, the most delicate of fruits. So they use peaches and pears, for example, in, in experiments in the US to demonstrate that this was just physically impossible and that a honeybee may well follow you know, the pecking of a bird or the, the penetration of a, of a wasp into this fruit but they were not the key instigators of the damage. So this was one whole line of scientific experiment was around um, honeybee damage to fruits. And this honey um, apiarist work to try to educate neighboring growers around the dangers of insecticide use ended up deviating into this whole other set of scientific studies and educational pamphlets, etc., where they sought to demonstrate the value of honeybees to the orchard and really to educate growers and the public about the role of honeybees in pollination. And this was, you know, this had been proved scientifically from about the 1870s on, but it wasn't widely known. And, you know, beekeepers had to over and over again try to um, draw upon the scientific literature. They would actually bring pamphlets and scientific papers to their neighbors to show them that in, indeed, you know, they've done these experiments where they've isolated fruit trees, they've you know, wrapped them in some kind of cheesecloth that won't allow bees to penetrate, and they compare the yield of the fruit tree with honeybee pollination and without. Uh, and they, you know, had to replicate these studies many times through the 1880s and 90s until they finally had conclusive evidence that the, you know, Society of Economic Entomologists could put their stamp on and say, indeed, honeybees play a really vital role in pollination. And, you know, the other side of these debates was also around native pollinators. So some orchardists would say, look, you know, I was growing uh, fruit trees here in California before there were even any honeybees. They hadn't, you know, there were people growing fruit before there were a lot of honeybees. And so these studies would have to say it's the scale of the orchards, to, you know, that we have today in the 1880s that mean native pollinators just can't do the en enough of the work that a more efficient and numerous honeybee can. So, yeah, a whole education campaign gets launched around the role of honeybees in pollination. You asked me about lawsuits, too. This was just a, a fascinating part of the research to find sev not one, but several cases where growers had sued neighboring beekeepers for damage to their crops. So instead of recognizing that bees are vitally important as pollinators for their apple or peach or pear trees, they actually took beekeepers to court for trespass. So uh, they would say, your bees are trespassing on my property. 
drawing upon a body of law that talked about livestock trespass and uh, said that, you know, the bees had caused damage while they were here. And, you know, it, it's here that organizations like the North American Beekeepers Union become quite important in defending beekeepers' interests. So they're encouraging beekeepers, you know, be sure to pay your union dues so that we can help defend you in, in trespass cases like this. And this is, you know, 1880s. It's happening across the country. There was a, you know, a case between two brothers in New York State where you, where you saw this really play out. And finally, you know, some pretty, uh, they hired some big high-class lawyers in New York to really try this case and brought in some of the big experts, um, honeybee scientists of the period, who this is where you see those studies coming up where they say honeybee jaws are just not strong enough. And so the, the beekeepers finally win that case in the early 1890s and they can kind of put that whole thing to rest. But you, you know, trespass cases still become a thing around insecticide poisonings into the 20th century. Uh, the, the image though, you know, again, it's not the idyllic Victorian gentleman farmers having a, a polite conversation across the fence. This is two brothers yeah. feuding, one brother the beekeeper, the other brother the, the, the fruit grower, ha having a feud which leads to a court case. Yeah. And again, not, not what we would think was going on at the time, but I, you know, the, the whole idea that it, was the, that it was the research and then that dissemination of that research and the applications of it which brought about the change in, in um, what, what people thought these bees were up to. It, it's just, it, it's amazing really to think about that was going on based on, on how we operate now with bees being so absolutely crucial for, for pollination purposes. Um, I'd like to just completely change tactics. And, and another thing that I learned in reading your paper, which I found really interesting was, and, and I, had, I had to, because as a curious person, I have to always know a little bit more. And there was another term like this, this, this term that, that conjured an image in my mind of taking the bee papers. It was these two words, Paris green. And I thought uh -huh. that sounds, Paris green, that sounds lovely. And then, then you start to, to learn about Victorian fashion and, and how, you know, with, with gaslight now, instead of candlelight, the ladies wanted these, these really vibrant colors in their clothing. So there was an industry built up around these, I don't know what you call them. They were chemists of the day, but kind of a little bit mad in their chemistry. And they would mix together whatever substances and however toxic uh -huh. into things to create these dyes. And I don't know if you want to take it from there because people are now wondering, why are they talking about green dyes and Victorian ladies fashion? And what does that have to do with beekeeping? But that takes us up and, 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 a, and a Canadian company, which we all know, Sherwin-Williams, came into this, this story. So maybe if you can tie all those together for us. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, so you have these people who are creating dyes, as you, as you so nicely created that, that image for not only ladies' fashion, but also wall paint in, in the Victorian period. And so they're, yes, mad chemists experimenting with things like lead and arsenic and um, copper and other substances to create different color formations. And as a result, they, they find out that these, um, some of these concoctions are also awfully useful as rodenticides, as things that will kill rodents and insects. So I imagine this is just by leaving such substances around and one finds a, you know, a dead fly lying in the bare screen, I'm not sure. But 
the applications for these chemical combinations really begins to widen. So I think Paris Green comes into use around, you know, the early to mid 19th century and its, its applications just widen and widen. It keeps that name of the paint color, but it's actually a copper arsenate compound. So combining um, a form of arsenic with a form of copper, which proves to be very lethal to insects, but gentle on plant foliage. So people who are growing tender fruits and other forms of vegetables that are having insect problems start to apply it really widely late 1870s and into the 1880s. And by the end of the century, people are putting it on their, you know, residential gardens, you name it. It's, it's being used in, in many different ways. I don't know the story of the, the Canadian company who takes this up, but it was sold widely at garden centers and for agricultural supply. And not only that, but you had a whole, you know, group of people who were really promoting it, including federal scientists, like James Fletcher, who I've mentioned a few times, he thought, you know, if only these Ontario growers would just spray a little more, we'd have way better apple crop. So you get a lot of pressure from agricultural scientists who are encouraging growers to use more and more and more of this. And it's being used over the border in the States much more than it is in Canada. So you start to see a, a growth in the use of these insecticides. And, you know, by, by the turn of the century, lead arsenate comes to replace this copper arsenate, the Paris green, as the most um, widely used of the so-called organic insecticides in that uh, it's even more gentle on foliage and even more lethal. It sticks to foliage more than the, it's, it, the copper arsenate that was used before it. So that's part of my story is most, most of the time when people think about insecticide controversies, they're immediately thinking post-World War II when we have this whole range of synthetic insecticides that start to be used on such a wide scale. You know, why my story is different is I'm talking about a totally different time period. I'm looking at the late 19th century when we were spraying really lethal compounds with equally or, you know, equally devastating effects, certainly for insects, but also for, you know, other species as well. Certainly those effects broaden with things like DDT, but uh, these insecticides had a role in workers' health as well as, as insect, you know, broad insect death. It just frightens me, the idea that these, the, at the time they were just looking and they'd find a substance and go, well, this kills stuff. Let's, let's throw a lot of this around. Yeah, yeah. And it certainly, it certainly did kill things. And, and I, I didn't know anything about the Canadian connection either until I just happened to Google as we do with everything now. And uh, there was an image there of a can of, of this Paris green and it said Sherwin-Williams. And I, and I thought, that's, that's a Canadian company. They know now for making paint, of course. So it was not just used but it was it was produced here in in Canada but it didn't take long before we realized that there, maybe this isn't the, the, the great stuff that we thought it would be and, and again we can draw parallels to to what goes on now but there was also a change at the time which which um, resulted in this widespread spraying in in agriculture and they referred to it as an insect emergency mm -hmm. because we were we were developing these huge monocultures of, of apples, for example. And with that came the, 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 uh, the, the pests. 
Yeah, I mean, this is this. I'm glad you brought that up because this is such an important piece of the puzzle. Is that we have to remember that growers were just facing devastation of their crops. So when you talk to apple growers who first start to use these wonder compounds, you know, they were, you know, they were saying we can finally turn out a full barrel of apples before we'd have to throw out most of them due to insect damage. And certainly this is this early effect of um, monoculture cropping and that farmers were finding they were just so much more vulnerable to insect infestation due to producing so much of one kind of crop. And this is happening, you know, um, by the late 19th century. And so environmental historians and others have coined this the, the insect emergency because by the 1870s and 80s, farmers of all sorts of different crops were just being devastated by infestation after infestation of different kinds of insects who were taking advantage of just the lack of diversity in the, uh, in the vegetation uh, that they could, you know, really do great damage to large areas of, of crop. And so these insecticides come in in that context and are used widely in that context of um, enormous insect damage in the late 19th century. Mm. And, and we can only imagine the effects on the health of the people who were, who were applying these. And there's, there's a great picture, and I encourage people to, to look at the pictures in your, your publication of people with no, what we call PPE now. They just have a wagon with horses and these clouds of, of toxic chemicals surrounding them and the horses. Oh. Um, but there was some concern at the time for, for human health more broadly, and that had to do not directly with the workers, but more with the consumption of the honey? Uh, consumption of honey and consumption of apples. So people are really concerned, especially overseas. So in England, uh, big importers of North American apples they're really concerned about residue, uh, arsenic residue on apples. And so there's a big brouhaha in the press about that. And, you know, the, uh, the people who respond in the U.S. are mainly saying, well, you'd have to eat a whole lot of apples uh, to get really sick from arsenic poisoning. So there, there's no recognition of the cumulative injury of arsenic at this time. They're just saying, well, you you know, you could eat, 50, you'd have to eat 50 apples in one sitting to, uh, to have any immediate effects from the arsenic. And so they presume then that it is safe. Uh, the question around honey, this is where um, the honeybee scientists also come in to reassure people in that, and I learned quite a bit in, in about beekeeping in trying to research this story in that the way that bees collect honey and the timing of different kinds of collection with the spray. So the fact that uh, orchardists are only spraying trees when they're in bloom, and this is a brief window in the spring. And, you know, what I come to find in this story is that the nectar that bees are collecting at that period is not the nectar that will be used to produce commercial honey at the end of the season. That's the brood feeding nectar. And please correct me if I made a bunch of mistakes there, but this is what I understand. And this is what scientists use to reassure consumers of honey in this period. They can say, you can be assured you're not going to have, you, you can have your honey with the Paris green left out mm. because of the timing of the spray. Yeah. And the people who are listening to this, who, who are beekeepers and pollinators, 
we don't have to beat them over the head with the parallels between what exactly what was going on then, because we're having the same discussions now about timing of spraying during the pollination period and the effect on bees and the and uh, you know the buildup in wax and and comb and honey. Um, so we're still talking about those things, but I, I think one of the things we're talking about now and they were talking about then, which which is kind of the, one of the main focuses of your research, is the effect on the bees health of these sprays yes certainly so um and you know the emotion in some of these uh beekeepers accounts really comes through even across the centuries beekeepers coming to find you know just devastation among their among their colonies you know lots of dead bees near the near the opening of the hive um the loss of you know tens of tens of colonies um, for some beekeepers and complete devastation next to certain orchards who are spraying when the trees are in bloom. So the effects of the bees themselves become the subject of these toxicity studies, which really proves that yes, the, these chemicals are highly toxic to honeybees. And they talk about, you know, the amount of, of exposure that's that's required. And so, like you're saying, um, much of the effort of beekeepers becomes we need to we need to really focus on the timing of the spray. They don't ever really push back on the use of the insecticides in the first place. And I found that really interesting that that beekeepers at the time aren't saying they recognize some of them are growers themselves. They recognize the great value of these insecticides for producing better crops. And they just know that they're not going to get anywhere with that argument as, you know, minority producers in this landscape of big, powerful growing interests in many cases. So they really just go with, I think, growers' common sense uh, and knowledge that spraying when the trees are in bloom doesn't have, doesn't help their interests either. It's bad for the trees and it doesn't target the pest. So the entire campaign in the 1880s and 90s is don't spray when the trees are in bloom and everything will be okay. And I think that's one of the arguments I make in the paper is they essentially win that battle. You know, Ontario produces the first legislation in North America against spraying while the trees are in bloom. So it's, it's an act for the protection of bees in 1881, which is pretty exciting to find. Uh, but I think beekeepers find it's not so much the legislation that's effective, it's all that education they did around the value of bees to the orchard. And the fact that this is actually not a difficult fix in their minds, right? Just don't spray when the trees are in bloom. But what they find is that over the decades and into the 20th century, they have to keep fighting this battle over and over again as new compounds are put on the market. And I know this is what you're experiencing now, right? And having to adjust to the, the dictates of whatever this new poison is uh, that's threatening their bees. So I, I'm not sure the case today, but it was interesting that beekeepers you know, they, they, they talk about it in the 19th century and they say it's no, there's no use agitating against insecticides full school, you know, in full. We just need to, to talk about timing and be practical in our uh, response here. And I don't know. I don't know if they would have been effective if they'd tried anything else, but uh, it's, it's a battle that it means they have to keep fighting. 
Yeah, and I, I, I am reassured and find it interesting that Ontario led the way in this. And and it, it was a situation where with, with the research that had been done and, and working with the the fruit growers, they were sort of pushing on an open door for this legislation, this very early legislation. But yes. that wasn't the opinion in all of the, the areas that were affected by this phrase. Other, other, particularly down in the States, I understand, there was a lot of resistance. Yes, and here you had really strong growing lobbies, growers lobbies saying, you know, they wanted no um, curtailment of their freedoms. There's, you know, again, a lot of mocking kind of responses to beekeeper concerns and saying, you know, why don't you just keep your bees shut up while we're spraying next door. And you get a series of bills that are brought before state legislatures trying to, which is using the Ontario legislation for inspiration. Some of these are passed in places like uh, Michigan, Illinois, and a few other neighboring states, but they fail in other places, largely due to the greater economic power of agricultural interests who just see this as you know, an imposition on, on their freedoms. And some of them talk about economies of scale. They don't want to have to spray at different times for different species of trees based on when they're in bloom. Essentially, you know, they just don't want to cooperate. And I think beekeepers find in that case that individual discussions with, with neighboring growers are what proves most effective. And they talk a lot about, we just need more growers to keep bees. And then they would understand these, you know, um, the risks and they would understand the benefits. Mm. I think back to our point about uh, our hope to envision this ideal historic past. I had hoped there was a time when there wasn't lobbyists, but it seems we've always had lobbyists. <laughs> yeah, I think whenever there's things we have to, we have to, you know, that affect people differently. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, it, it's fascinating. And I'm sure we could talk about this, this for, for quite a while. But what I'd like to know now, if, if you'd be willing to share with us, what have you got in store next with your beekeeping research? Is this something you'd like to carry on with? or? Yes, there's a book in the works. So just scratching the surface of this topic brought there was just so much to talk about, Andrew. <laughs> so this early paper on insecticides controversies in the 1880s will be one chapter of a book that I'm working on, a book-length study for that I'll be publishing with McGill Queen's University Press, I think, in, in the next couple of years. I'm working on a chapter on um, bee forage, as really will really be the first chapter of this book, where I plan to look at changes in bee forage over time with, with land use change. So things like agricultural modernization and what that means for beekeepers in terms of, you know, the, the use of clover, uh, you, you know, on neighboring farms and how that's really declines after the 1930s. So there's a lot, there's, there's been some interesting work on that in Ontario. Um, things like the use of roadside sprays to destroy wildflowers uh, across regions and beekeeper, beekeepers advocated against that too. So, and they talk a lot about the need to sow uh, wildflowers. So beekeepers should be out there sowing seeds, you know, wherever they go, sowing wildflowers. So there's a lot of activism work in the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century 
around creating landscapes that support bees and other pollinators. And I'm interested in telling that story. I'll be looking at the effects of American fowl brood on beekeepers in the Great Lakes region in the 1880s and 90s and how they move from a kind of sanitation kind of response. You know, we just need to shake the, uh, shake the frames and get all this stuff off to with, you know, germ theory and germ theory of disease coming to more um, chemical responses to, to that disease. I also look at the development of out apiaries and, you know, the transportation of colonies, pollination contracts and that kind of thing in one of my chapters. So it's about insecticides, disease, landscape change, and um, changes in the practice of beekeeping, particularly around uh, pollination contracts and what this means environmentally. So I guess in some, I'm really interested in beekeepers as being really knowledgeable about the environments around them, their knowledge of seasonal bloom and what should and shouldn't be in bloom and how that changed locally, but also over time. I found them such interesting historical actors in that uh, they just crystallized this knowledge of seasonality uh, and environmental change in such a useful way for me as an environmental historian. So I've just so enjoyed this research. And, and I know it, it astounds me, all of the topics that you presented are things we're still talking about today. And, and uh, the, the parallels are just, it, it is, it's just amazing. The beekeeper is sort of this advocate and person who's in touch with the environment, even more so maybe than some farmers. But I think, you know, people that are out in the environment see these changes and we've seen, you know, we've seen weather patterns and severe weather, extreme weather that we've not seen for, for a long time and certainly beekeepers that's what we talk about and and because it affects the bees so directly and these things their effect on bees i think and, and i'd like you to tell me how you feel they make a great sentinel for what's going on in the environment whether it's it's toxicity or whether it's it's climate change do you think people are paying more attention to that environmental sentinel now than they were when you're reading about it over 100 years ago Absolutely. I mean, I think if honeybees have, if, if sorry, if beekeepers have continually had to fight this battle against not only insecticides, but this whole range of factors surrounding environmental change, the one, you know, light in the tunnel is the fact that so many ordinary citizens who know very little about bees and probably couldn't, you know, tell the difference between a, a honeybee and a yellow jacket, you know, there's something about bees, both historically and now, that people really gravitate to. So to finish my, that, that earlier thought, I think absolutely there's greater, much greater public knowledge of um, the role of pollinators, of the significance of certain you know, kinds of plants that, that help and support pollinators in our landscape. So just the fact that we're seeing so many you know, gardeners sowing honeybee-friendly gardens you know, there's a massive change and honeybees as sort of, you know, cuddly symbols of some of, you know, they, they've become the new harp seal uh, in terms of things that we need to work to protect, which is interesting because they're not a native species, but I think people have always gravitated to their nature as social insects and also to their industriousness. So even, you know, 
16th century writing on honeybees is talking about honeybees as a model for the perfect human society where, you know, this is before they even understood that um, it was a female queen. They assumed it was a male, you know, running the society. So we, if you look to that cultural history of bees, you see all of these comparisons year after year where, you know, different writers are saying, this is the kind of industrious society that we need to emulate as people. So I think there's that longer historical trend, but I think what wasn't there was this understanding of the relationship between the bee and its wider environment. And what I mean by that is, I don't think the public understood that. They understood bees as a sort of idealized society and a different kind of insect and one that was industrious and useful to humans. But I think the change that we see now is, it's part of a broader ecological understanding that ordinary people increasingly have, I think, even though we're more distanced from nature in many ways, and we have maybe not as much interaction with it as, you know, people earlier in the 20th century would have, there's a greater ecological awareness. And bees are such an interesting creature in that they create that nexus between people's palates and broader environments and uh so that's why i think they're such fascinating creatures and that people have really latched onto them as strongly as they have in the past you know 10 10 years or so and all, all of those things that we can connect to with the bees as you say from them showing us what's going on in the environment to providing something which we keep in our kitchen cover all the time for breakfast so always there as a reminder jennifer i'd really like to thank you for your time today and I've enjoyed this this conversation and I'd like to ask you if you can make us a promise will you will you come back when you finish your your next uh, your next chunk of this work and you've got something out there for us to look at and we can talk again I would love to I would absolutely love to you know it was such a pleasure to have one of the first responses to this paper be not from a fellow academic or environmental historian but from someone who actually works with bees and beekeepers that meant the world to me so i would love to come back and tell and, you about the work yeah okay we, we will hold you to that <laughs> fantastic <laughs> thank you very much okay thanks andrew you've been listening to what's the buzz without a beekeeping podcast with me andrew byers your host and my guest for today dr jennifer banal if you'd like to find out more about jennifer and her research you can go to her website jennifer Bunnell com. Your What's the Buzz with Ada Beekeeping podcast is brought to you by your Atlantic Tech Transfer team for ape culture and perennia food and agriculture. We would like to thank Rachel Oxner and Patty Ryan for production and editing, and we would like to thank you, our listeners. For more information on beekeeping in our region, visit our blog, www.atabuzz.com and find us on Twitter, Atta at Atlantic Bee. Honey, a bee.